Welcome to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. What would prevent a person from being baptized? Find out in today's study of Acts chapter 8, verses 35 through 40. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26 and reading through verse 40. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to meet him and heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah, and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. In our last few studies, we've been working through the case of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Although this is not a particularly long section of Scripture, it is particularly rich in meaningful content, and in many respects, it represents one of the most thorough and comprehensive cases of conversion in all of Acts. That's not to say that it is exhaustive, but it is perhaps the nearest of all cases to being exhaustive, and thus it deserves likely even more attention than we've given it. First, we considered in Acts 8, 26-27, the extraordinary circumstances that led to Philip the Evangelist meeting a remarkable man in an otherwise uninhabited place in the middle of the country. And we saw some visible manifestations of the normally invisible divine initiative in bringing those with hungry hearts into contact with God's power to justification. The man was introduced by Luke as an Ethiopian, a eunuch of great authority in the royal cabinet of the Queen Mother, or the Kandake of Ethiopia, 
and a devout worshiper of the one true God who had traveled all the way to Jerusalem from his homeland, a journey of more than 1,000 miles one way, to worship. We noted that everything about this man would seem to justify him in the minds of modern thinkers. He came from a remote country with its own culture and religion, and our pluralistic society would say that he and his people had their own truth that was obviously sufficient for them. But this man would have disagreed. He did not believe that the historic religion of the Ethiopians was sufficient because he had somehow become a worshiper of the God of Israel. And furthermore, he was a devout and sincere worshiper. He made great personal sacrifice to obey God, even when the law of God placed limitations on his capacity to serve and participate in the worship that might have seemed unfair. His position in life indicates that he was likely a man of very high character and personal integrity, so he was frankly the sort of fellow who many people would say did not need to be saved at all. I sometimes hear people talk about those on the lower rungs of the social ladder as those who need the gospel most. But the Bible knows of no such distinction as that. There are not people who are more lost or less lost. If one is a sinner, the only hope of justification in the sight of God is pardon of his or her sins, however many there are or whatever variety they may consist of. And pardon is only possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This message of justification only through faith in Jesus Christ is the heart and center of the Christian gospel. But it is also present in the writings of the Old Testament. And in fact, the Apostle Paul argued that the old writings were designed to bring Israel to a place where they could fully appreciate and receive the truth of justification by faith. That's particularly his point in the third chapter of the book of Galatians. The apostles demonstrate several Old Testament witnesses to the gospel throughout New Testament writings, but perhaps none of these are more clearly framed than the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. In these scriptures, the prophet speaks of the servant of God, a special personality who is also called the Messiah or the anointed one. In verses 3 through 6, he says of the servant, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. From the earliest days of the Christian faith, the followers of Jesus have seen his sufferings throughout his life and ministry, but especially on the cross, clearly portrayed in these words. And in the mighty providence of God, this man of Ethiopia had come to possess a copy of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And the place in the scripture which he read was the verses immediately following those we have just now read. So he had read them too. 
He had seen Isaiah's account of the suffering servant, and he was continuing on in verses 7 through 8. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. However, apart from the knowledge of Jesus' life, teachings, and ministry— Old Testament passages like this are shrouded in mystery and devoid of any intelligible meaning. So, when Philip appeared and asked him if he understood what he was reading, the eunuch answered Philip and said, How can I unless some man guides me? I ask you of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then, the Bible says in verse 25, Philip opened his mouth. Now, that might seem like a very unnecessary comment, because obviously if a man is going to speak, he's going to open his mouth. But this is a Hebraism, a Jewish figure of speech, for speaking with authority. You're going to find it occasionally in the narratives of the teaching of Jesus. Philip did not simply respond with his truth, as modern folks might say, nor was he offering an educated guess about an obscure passage. He was giving the true interpretation of the passage according to the direction of the Holy Spirit and the witness of the apostles. And beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. With all that the eunuch had to commend him, Jesus, and a knowledge of Jesus, is the one thing he lacked. But if we have everything in the world and lack Jesus, we have nothing to save us from our sins. The Bible says that in preaching Jesus, Philip began at this scripture. We don't know precisely what he said, nor where else in the scripture he took the eunuch. We've already mentioned how just a short way further in the scroll, in Isaiah 56, he would find a powerful prophecy of Gentile inclusion into the covenant of God that specifically promised redemption and full participation in the community of God's people and the worship of God's temple to eunuchs. We will consider a few other scriptures shortly that Philip might have utilized for this sermon, but the truth is that all the scriptures provided material for this kind of teaching as Jesus himself had demonstrated when he walked and preached about his own death and resurrection to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, beginning with Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures, Luke 24 and verse 27. Continuing in Acts 8 verse 36, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Some readers are surprised to find water in a place that was earlier described as desert, but you may remember from a previous study that the term desert simply means deserted or uninhabited, as in the NASB footnote. We mentioned before that Dr. Barclay, who visited this region in the 19th century, described it as one of the most fertile and lush areas he had seen in his life. There have been several attempts to identify the precise location but we're content to receive the testimony of both Luke and the eunuch that they came to some water. But what's especially interesting is that when they came to some water, the eunuch urgently requested baptism. The question, what hinders me, carries the idea of a deep longing for something with a willingness to do whatever is necessary to make it so. 
but it also carries a confessional connotation. It shows us that the eunuch had accepted Philip's preaching, and he realized that through Jesus the Christ, he too was welcomed to enter God's kingdom. Earlier in this lesson, we emphasized the things that would cause people to justify and commend this man, but in reality, his own focus would have been on the things that excluded him from the God he believed in and longed for. He was a Gentile, and he was a eunuch, doubly distanced from fellowship with the Creator under the Mosaic Covenant. But now there is a way for him to receive a place in God's house and within his walls and a name better than that of sons and daughters, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, and to be brought into God's holy mountain and made joyful in God's house of prayer without restriction or limitation, Isaiah 56, 5-7. through Although Luke does not discuss any of the theological issues associated with baptism, we find that everything the Bible says about baptism elsewhere is powerfully and clearly illustrated here. We see that preaching Jesus includes preaching baptism. It must, because Jesus is what Philip preached, and the result of the sermon was a request for baptism. McGarvey stated it well. When men preach Jesus as they should, baptism is a part of the sermon. It was a part of Peter's sermon on Pentecost and of Philip's preaching to the Samaritans. And we shall see as we proceed through the book of Acts that it had a place in every completed apostolic sermon addressed to sinners. We see that baptism is vitally connected with the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ because that is specifically what Philip's sermon considered. This in perfect keeping with the words of Paul in Romans 6, 3-6 do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Also in Colossians 2, 11-13, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. If these were among the points and principles explained to the eunuch in Philip's sermon, we can see clearly why he would desire baptism. In baptism, he would be united with the sacrificial death of Jesus about which he had just read and learned, and he would himself die to sin and receive new life in Christ. In baptism, he who could not be circumcised in the flesh and was hopelessly excluded from the full blessings of the covenant made through Moses would be circumcised in his heart by union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in baptism, and be made alive with him, having all his trespasses forgiven. Note also that he desired immediate baptism. That's always the pattern in the book of Acts, and it supports the point that baptism was something considered essential to a person's salvation. It must be tended to without delay, even if it meant pulling the chariot over in the middle of nowhere, 
When one hears and believes the apostolic message about baptism, that it is in order to the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38, then reasonably it becomes a matter to be attended to the same day, Acts 2.41, that very hour, Acts 16.33, immediately, as soon as the water is available. There are some challenging issues associated with verse 37. In fact, you may notice that in some translations, verse 37 is not even present. We're going to have a special study discussing this verse and these issues, but for now, we will continue on in verse 38. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. The expression, both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and the subsequent statement of verse 39, that they came up out of the water, does not describe the act of baptism itself, because the text says that after going down into the water, he baptized him. But they do make it exceedingly clear that immersion was the mode of baptism, and is in fact the meaning of the word, because if sprinkling or pouring were the method employed, it would be utterly unnecessary to go down into the water. That is, for both Philip and the eunuch to enter the body of water. In fact, we suppose that any thinking man taking a long journey through the Palestinian wilderness would bring some canteen of drinking water with him, and thus if baptism could be accomplished by the mere application of a little water— then they didn't even need to stop the chariot to tend to the ordinance. It is difficult to understand and to process how religious people can be as dishonest as many have been when it comes to this account. In the Expositor's Bible, Dr. G.T. Stokes describes the scene this way. The Ethiopian eunuch baptized by St. Philip in the wilderness could not have been immersed he came to a stream trickling along, scarcely sufficient to lave his feet, or perhaps rather to a well in the desert. The water was deep down and reached only, as in the case of Jacob's well, by a rope or chain. Even if the water could have been reached, common sense, not to speak of any higher motive, would have forbidden the pollution of it, an element so needful for human life. That's page 143 of that commentary. And yet Luke says, both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and they came up out of the water. Nearly all ancient artwork of this scene depicts the baptism of the eunuch as a little stream of water being poured on his head from a clamshell or something like that. And yet Luke says, both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and they came up out of the water. And it was when they were both down in the water together that Philip baptized him. That is, he immersed him. He buried him with Christ. That's the meaning of the word baptism, and it is the clear representation of the scene according to Luke. Verse 39 says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. This is a rather shocking conclusion to the account. 
The Holy Spirit again intervenes, but this time to mystically translate Philip from the scene and carry him 34 miles away, where he resumed his preaching tour in all the cities, evangelizing as before until he came to Caesarea, where he evidently remains for more than 20 years, and we will meet him again in Acts 21 and verse 8. However, we are especially interested in what happened to the Ethiopian man. Luke simply says the eunuch saw Philip no more, and he went on his way rejoicing, and thus it appears that Luke was not especially interested in his post-baptismal case, and he wants his readers to simply go on their way as well. However, I suggest that is not the intention of Luke at all. While there are some clear and helpful points to be drawn from what is plainly said, for example, that joy follows immersion in water for the remission of sins, which is not at all surprising because it lines up perfectly with what we saw in Philip's work in Samaria, Acts 8, 5 through 8 and 13, yet there are also some major questions that we need to answer as best we can. There's certainly some extraordinary features to this account, namely the interventions of the angel and of the Holy Spirit. McGarvey has well observed that these supernatural interventions were likely never known by the eunuch himself. Listen to this quote from McGarvey's new commentary on the book of Acts. Should a friend have met the eunuch after he parted from Philip and inquired as to the cause of the joy so manifest in his countenance, the recital would have presented the facts of the conversion from his point of view rather than from that of our historian. He would not have begun the story as our author does with the visit of the angel to Philip, for of this he knew nothing. He would not have mentioned the command of the Holy Spirit, Go join thyself to this chariot, for of this he was equally ignorant. But his story would have been like so. I'd been to Jerusalem to worship. I'd started for home, and as I rode in my chariot, I opened the book of Isaiah and commenced reading. I came upon the passage so puzzling to our scribes in which the prophet speaks of the humiliation and death of someone for the good of the world, and I was laboring to determine in my own mind of whom the prophet wrote these words, when suddenly there appeared running by the side of my chariot a footman, who inquired, Understandest thou what thou readest? His manner indicated that he understood it, and it seemed providential that he came to me at that very moment when I needed his help. I invited him to take a seat with me. I pointed to the passage and stated to him my difficulty. In a short time, he had made it perfectly plain to me that this passage referred to the long-looked-for Messiah, and that this great personage, instead of reigning here on earth, as our scribes have taught us, was to die a sacrifice for our sins, to rise from the dead, ascend to heaven whence he came, and to establish his kingdom over both men and angels. He convinced me of this truth and showed me that through that man's blood, by faith in him and repentance and baptism in his name, we are to receive the remission of sins which the law could not give us. While he was still speaking to me these good things of great joy, we came to a certain water, and I requested the baptism in which he had instructed me. He baptized me. He then was gone from me as abruptly as he had come to me, but I have come on my way rejoicing in the forgiveness of sins and the assured hope of everlasting life. Certainly, 
What Luke records endorses that would have been precisely the eunuch's account of the events. But we know that there was a remarkable intervention of an angel and of the Holy Spirit. Why? We've already concluded that this was not the normal experience of evangelists even in those days. It signals that something very meaningful was happening here. Next, we come to what we can only call the abandonment of the new convert. This is very strange, because while Acts consistently manifests the fulfillment, or we might even say, as E.V. Zollers, the execution of the Great Commission, in this case, the exact opposite of what Jesus commanded seems to occur. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, "'Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit,' teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That last injunction to teach the baptized to observe all things that Jesus commanded is just as much a part of the commission and instruction as to baptize, that commandment, and yet we see no way to insert it into the narrative. Instead, it appears the exact opposite took place. Some have noted this difficulty and sought to remedy it. In the world of Biblical manuscripts, which we'll discuss in our next study, there are two texts of Acts, the Alexandrian text and the Western text. The Western text contains several readings not found in the Alexandrian, and scholars debate how accurate and valuable they are. However, one of the most interesting, and one that is fairly well regarded by modern scholars, comes right here at the conclusion of Acts chapter 8. The Western text says that it was an angel who spirited Philip away and that the Holy Spirit fell upon the eunuch. That is, that the eunuch was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, what makes this reading attractive is that it explains how he could go on his way with no teaching but still rejoice because the Holy Spirit had given him miraculous gifts and inspiration that would equip him to carry the kingdom of heaven wherever he went. While there are several modern scholars in and out of the Restoration Movement who support this reading and accept this explanation of the situation, I do not. As we're going to see, the Western text seems to be embellished in several respects, and while some of those embellishments might be helpful in some ways for our interpretation— this one actually works against what the rest of the book of Acts says about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Everything we read about spirit baptism in the two occasions where it clearly occurs, Acts 2 and 10, indicates that it was a sign for the Jewish believers manifesting the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Yet that would not be the case here because no Jewish believer was present. Philip had been caught away. Holy Spirit baptism was a phenomenal event intended as a sign. It was not a replacement for the laying on of the apostles' hands to impart the gifts of the Spirit. So then, if the Western text does not have the answer, what is the right solution to the mysteries of this account? I believe the answer lies in points we've already made about the way the ancients view Ethiopia. In previous studies, we've shown several examples in Greek and even biblical literature in which Ethiopia was called the ends of the earth or the uttermost parts of the earth or some equivalent expression. Remember that in Acts 1.8, 
Jesus said, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here in Acts 8, Providence guided an evangelist into the second stage of that evangelistic program to Samaria, and after the establishment of the congregations in Samaria, God intervened in extraordinary ways to get the gospel to a man who had come from the final region, the ends of the earth. And by bringing the Ethiopian man to Christ and sending him on his way with his discipleship incomplete, God was in a sense planting a flag for Christ's kingdom in the uttermost parts of the earth, promising that the kingdom would follow him. And soon he and all those among his people who desired it would be brought to the fullness of the knowledge of Christ. In the 68th Psalm, David prophesied of the ascension of Jesus Christ and the establishment and growth of his kingdom to fill the whole earth. Verses 17 through 32 say, You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord. The ancient church historian Eusebius was just one of many Christians throughout time who saw the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch as a fulfillment of this prophecy. And he called him the first fruits of believers throughout the world. Surely Philip must have assured him that God would quickly come to the outstretched hands of Ethiopia to spread and share the salvation this man had found with as many others so that the earth might be filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord like the waters that cover the sea. He could go on his way rejoicing because the kingdom was spreading. He was the proof. It was coming even to his home. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and do trust and obey.